Last week we began a new series that we are calling How to Read the Bible. And uh, I want to make some clarifications on that title. Uh, and I may actually change it uh, as we go, we go through this. Uh, but uh, how, how to read the Bible, you'll understand my clarifications later. So last week, Kyle and I... Um, I hope y'all enjoyed the discussion last week. I got a lot of good feedback. Um, even some of you that I thought might have kind of gotten nervous or <laughs> been, uh, not offended, but just struggled with some of the, the things we said were complimentary, and I appreciate that. Um, and so I, I want to talk today about laying a foundation. And uh, today's probably not going to be super duper long, but how many times you know I've said that and it ends up being an hour and a half. So don't trust anything I say. Uh, we'll just all find out when it's over together. Um, I want to say this first before I forget, and I will repeat it later. Uh, there's a couple of resources that I'm using for this series that I'm picking and choosing from. Uh, many, many, many hours of lectures and reading and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I want to give you, make sure that I give you the resources. Um, because how many of you hate somebody that says something and you'd love to know where they got that from and they never give you the source? That just burns me up. I don't like that. So I try my best to not do that. So um, this is the first book, if you're a reader, that I would suggest you get. Uh, I'm going to put it up for the camera so maybe they can, can y'all zoom in on this maybe um, so people can see it, take a screenshot of it or whatever. Uh, it's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Um, and it is, oh, I don't know, 280 pages or so, 200 pages. Um, and it is a great, easy-to-read uh, book done by Christian scholars that I'll just tell you don't agree with maybe the way that we interpret Scripture in some aspects. Um, but it is a very, very good guide on, on the different types of writings in the Bible and what the why God or why the author chose that particular type of writing to convey the message. So it's a great book, easy to read. Um, it's, it took me, the first time I read it, about... Uh, about five days to read it, which means that probably take most of you about two hours. So uh, it's it's great, easy to read. Um, this behemoth, on the other hand, is only if you get through this and go like, "Wow, I really want more of that." Right? Read this one first, and then read this one if you're if you're interested. I haven't even read this one. I'm using it as a reference for stuff that I, is in here or other resources. Um, but it is called The Literary Guide to the Bible. And um, it's a, another great book. Uh, usually if you go on Amazon and look at these, you can buy them together. Because uh, the way Amazon does things. Uh, chock full of information. And I tell you what, I've used uh, on Merriam-Webster online more reading this book than I think I ever have in my life. Because they use a lot of really smart words that I don't particularly know. So... Um, those are the couple of books that I would recommend um, if you're interested in this, and I think you should be. Um, also, uh, Pete Enns, who I mentioned last week, E-N-N-S, um, has some, some great books, just about everything he's written. Uh, I would encourage you to check out. And also, The, uh, the Bible Project, which is a, a ministry that does videos, animated videos on things in the Bible. But they also have a podcast, and now they have a mobile app where you can listen to hours and hours of the scholar uh, Tim Mackey and uh, his friend John uh, talk about how to read the Bible and, and all this, and it's wonderful. So if you're an auditory listener, there's stuff for you. If you're a reader, there's stuff for you. Um, the bottom line is, I think this is a really important topic. I think it's an important topic 
that we wrestle with, and like Kyle and I talked about last week, mentioned, um, I'm going to walk around a little bit just because I feel weird up here for some reason today. Um, I think because y'all are all out there. What, what, what's the deal? Like, everybody's in a... I don't spit a lot when I talk, when I teach, do I? Is that what it is? Um, I think this is an important topic um, because, number one, because the Bible is what it is, right? And, and one of the things I want to establish this morning and I want everyone listening to know is my view of Scripture. So there, there's a couple different ways that smart people talk about Scripture and there are scholars... And, and I want to talk about scholarship just for a little bit and refer you to, a, I did an Image Bearers radio episode, which by the way, we still have our weekly radio shows going on, so check those out. Um, I did an Image Bearers radio episode, and I'm going to do a follow-up with Matt Knapper. Matt came and spoke with, to us a couple years ago, and we were in our old building. He's a good friend of mine, lives in West Monroe, and he is pursuing his PhD in biblical studies. So he's pretty smart. <laughs> um, He's also a drill instructor in the military, been in, I don't know, 20 years or so, and, and uh, father of five. He's a great guy. Anyway, um, scholarship, we had a conversation about why biblical scholarship is important. And for those, of, for those of you, for those of us that, you know, you have life, right? You got a job, you got kids, you got grandkids, you got whatever. You, you, you spend 40 hours a week working a job whether it's selling insurance or whether it's being a nurse or whether it's a teacher or digging ditches or whatever it is, you spend the majority of your time uh, producing a product or giving a service. And that's what, your, that's what your life is about. And we have these people called scholars that their entire life is about studying the book that we base the rest of our lives on, right? And we, hopefully we established that last week, the importance that the Bible we base our entire reality around this book and yet we don't hardly even know anything about it we don't know how it came to be we don't know how to read it we 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 think we do and in some ways we get it really right and in some ways we get it really wrong and so we have we have people that spend uh, a couple of the scholars that i like a lot like one guy has spent 45 years in scholarship studying one book of the bible just just let that sit for a little bit one book 45 years that's the book of Isaiah the particular one I'm thinking about I I think that's right how many times have you read through Isaiah and gone like yeah I got it or you go like yeah that's some weird stuff but I mean I understand the parts that I can understand the rest is a mystery that we'll understand when we get to heaven right are we like we these these scholars they spend their entire eight hours ten hours twelve hours a day studying this book and some of these scholars so so the point is that don't you think that maybe there's some stuff that they found or that they notice that they see about the bible or the particular passages or books that they're studying that that maybe could be useful to us it's it's not a bad thing to rely on experts right um dr john walton who i based some of my Genesis stuff off of um, he talks about this like all the guys in here how many of you are very confident in your ability to plum- to, to do plumbing not brother Ron because he's a master plumber that's not fair but m- most of us like 
you know, if the sink clogs, we get some Drano or whatever. Uh, Brother Ron would probably be like, don't, don't put Drano down your drain. But we can clog it. But if we get a really bad problem, you're probably going to call an expert or you're going to call somebody in the family that knows a little bit more than what you know. Some of you guys in here are really mechanically gifted. Some of you are not. And if your car breaks down, you're going to take it to somebody who knows how to fix it, who spent time and has experience dealing with these issues. My point is that in real life, we have no problem relying on experts to deal with stuff that we don't know how to do. We trust them to do it right so that we can carry on with the rest of our lives. But when it comes to the Bible, sometimes we have this apprehension to rely on other people to give us a meaning or to give us a, 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 an opinion or an interpretation of Scripture. And sometimes we need people who have spent 20, 30, 40 years studying one book. I remember when I first started really listening to, to, to scholars lecture and stuff, it was, it was kind of offensive a little bit, but sometimes, you know, like... Uh, Hebrew scripture scholars or Old Testament scholars they really they really don't they really don't care a lot about the New Testament and they're pretty open about it like oh that's a New Testament thing I focus on the, the Old Testament and at first I was kind of like oh, how like how dare you right that's but in their field of study that's what they do and they read the New Testament devotional time and stuff but as far as what makes their 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 gears go it's it's that area of study and New Testament scholars the same but we need to get over this idea that, that it's, it's bad to rely on someone else for an interpretation. How many of you in here can read and understand fluent biblical Hebrew? Show of hands. Okay. You know that there's people that can? Don't you think it would be helpful to check out what they think? What about Greek? Greek's a little newer than Hebrew. Any of you guys fluent in Greek? No? Okay. So... We need experts. We need translations. We need these things. And it's not a bad thing to rely on them for what a word means or what a context is, what a culture was like, archaeology, and all, all the different kinds of things. This conversation is important, secondly, because that was like one point. I don't know. But secondly, it's important because many of us were never taught this stuff. We memorize Bible verses in Sunday school, Right? Or if you were Catholic, maybe you didn't. I don't know. I don't want to throw shade on the Catholics because I never was one. But from what I understand, um, but if you were Protestant, you probably learned Bible verses in Sunday school. Um, if you were part of a particular denomination, you probably learned certain Bible verses. If you were part of another denomination, you probably learned other Bible verses and didn't realize that your Pentecostal friends down the street, that their verses were in your Bible also as a Baptist kid. Or you didn't, you didn't realize you were reading the same Bible. You just memorized different parts of it, right? Different, different sound bites, different little clips of it. But one thing we were not taught, or I was not taught, was the rich history of how the Bible came to be, which this is not a discussion on. We did that. We've done that already. Or how to deal with it, how to, how to mess with it. Last week, you guys threw up all these words to describe what the Bible is or what you think about when you, when you think about the Bible. This is a lot to go through. And so we were never, we were never, we were never um, really taught the skills of how to, how to work the ins and outs. 
of this book that we use to create our, our reality, right? That's a big, big, big deal. Um, the movie The Matrix comes to mind, right? There's, there, there, what are we using to build, to build our, our foundation and our, um, uh, I can't think of the word, uh, our infrastructure, our reality on? And so it's important because there are things about it we don't know, so we need experts. And it's important, secondly, because um, we weren't taught it. Thirdly, it is important because it is the word of God to us. And we can, we can forget that because we've grown up in it. And again, like I tried to say the last few weeks, bless God, a lot of these problems that we have with the Bible are really not a problem. They're a blessing. Sometimes, like Kyle said last week, we have too much Bible. Sometimes we know the Bible too well. Sometimes we know the Bible too well that it creates this lullaby thing that we miss what else could be underneath or maybe what else is right there staring at us in the face. It's a good thing that we have issues with the Bible. It's a good thing that we have challenges when we read it. It's a good thing that for some people, the Bible is layered. For some people, the Bible's human. For some people, the Bible's complicated or confusing. That's a good thing. That means you've spent enough time with it You've spent enough time thinking about it and studying it and hearing it read and preached from that some stuff confuses you. You know, there's people that would, that would never say these things about the Bible because they've never had the ability to spend much time with it. And so these things may look like, some, you know, somebody might look at this and go, you think the Bible's confusing or complicated? That's, that's almost heretical. But it's because we've spent time when that's a good thing, that's a positive thing. So as we talk about these, these different issues and these different things, and, and this can get a little dry and mechanical at some times, and so I want you to ask, ask for your patience. But when we talk about these things, there's two different ways to talk about Scripture, what we call a high view of Scripture and a low view of Scripture. So in, in some of the things we're going to talk about, some scholars that you read and some commentators, some people even, that do this work have a low view of Scripture. What that means is that they enjoy the literary part of it the way that poetry is used and the way that puns are used and words are, you know, they enjoy the puzzle part of it, but it's not really the word of God. It doesn't hold any authority. It doesn't hold any weight. It doesn't hold anything. It's a literary work. And that's, a, that's not to be shamed. That's just the way they see it. And that's a low view of scripture. A high view of scripture, those are the people that we really want to be learning from because not only do they enjoy the literary aspects of the scriptures, but they also hold the, the authority and the, the inspirational part of it. And that's the people that we really want to we really follow and understand. So um, we're going to talk about inspiration a little bit more this morning, and then I'm going to give you just a couple of nerdy, geeky terms that you need to know and things that you already know, but I want to put names to these concepts. And, um, and, and we, won't, we won't be super, super long. So um, I hope y'all don't mind when I do this. I'm just going to read straight from this book. Is that cool? Because like I could plagiarize it, but they say it better than I could say it. So why not just, <laughs> just read it? Yeah, thank you, Miss Barber. If I get permission from Miss Barber, I'm good. You're the general. You're the general. She's the, Miss Barber's the sage. All right, so... Um, This is just in the introduction, but I think it's so wonderfully put. It says, every so often we meet someone who says with great feeling, you don't have to interpret the Bible, just read it and do what it says. 
I'm just gonna ask if you've heard that. How many of you have said that? Come on, be honest with me. How many of you have said that? If you're online, raise your hand. I can't see you, but it'll make you feel better. You've said that. You don't need to interpret. Just read it and do what it says, right? That's right. So one day you'll, maybe you'll find out, but don't question God. Yeah. And I was one of those people up until here in the last couple of years who tried to read it for what it said, and it just. That's, I love, thank you. Thank you. No, thank you for that input. I love, I love it. And that's, you know, a lot of, a lot of the way we see the Bible and read the Bible, honestly, um, Kyle and I talked a lot about inspiration, and I mean, I could, we could talk about inspiration for another, I don't know, yeah, I mean, yeah, too long. You guys would all get really, really bored with it. But it's fascinating because in, and some of this is going to cover, be covered in what I read, but a lot of the way that we, if you were born and raised here in Louisiana or in the South, there's a good chance you have the very same attitude that Nikki's talking about. So a lot of the way we read the Bible and, and look at the Bible and, and, and react with the Bible is a, is a result of how we grew up. It's a result of our culture. You know what? There's certain parts you're not supposed to understand. Read it anyway. It's like, okay. I mean, but then how do I base my life off of it, right? So there's all these dissonances that, that happen. So they go on to say, usually such a, a remark reflects the layperson's protest against the professional scholar, pastor, teacher, Sunday school teacher, who by interpreting seems to be taking the Bible away from the common person. So, so in other words, I'm, you don't need me to paraphrase, but I will anyway. Um, I don't need them to tell me their interpretation. I can interpret it for myself, right? Which is kind of the scholarship thing we, we talked about before. It is their way of saying that the Bible is not an obscure book. Quote, after all, Anyone with half a brain can read it and understand it. Have you heard that before? Have you said that before to somebody? The problem with too many preachers and teachers is that they dig around so much that they tend to muddy the waters. What was clear to us when we read it isn't so clear anymore. This is, this is really close to my heart because it's, this sounds really traditional, really fundamentalist. And from my background, the, the couple of different, several different churches that I've been a part of, uh, we've talked about this and kind of mocked it a little bit. We have a statement of faith on our website that I'll probably end up pulling down just because I don't like them. But, you know, you have the statement of faith on the four-year wall, right? And that's to clean up how we understand God and the Bible and our relationship to the world, etc. And it's to make it really clean. And in the Baptist church, there's stuff like the Romans Road, right? How many of you know the Romans Road, Right? The Romans Road, you have, you, everything is really clean and simple, and that's all you really need to know. But then some preacher comes along with history, and context, and culture, and languages, and archaeology, and all of a sudden, 
those things that were so clear before, now it's like, well, you start to question what they mean and how they fit together. And then we go, well, that's taking away the clear meaning. But what we did in putting those particular scriptures together is we just picked a sound bite from here and a sound bite from here and a sound bite from here, many times from different letters of Paul or different places in the, in the Tanakh, or we pick stuff apart and we go, these things sound like they go together. Let's create a doctrine. And we'll start living our lives by this doctrine. And the problem with that is, when you start running into history and context and culture, is that Scripture A from 3,000 years ago and Scripture, scripture B from uh, 4,000 years ago and then about 2,000 years ago were written to different people in different times, in different places, facing different situations by different people who were facing different situations in a different culture. Not to say that the overall value structure and meaning of the Bible is not consistent, it is. But the way we take things out of context and make a doctrine is dangerous. And then what, what as professionals, I'll put myself in that category no matter what you think about how professional I am. As professionals, ministers, we put these things together or we take those that have been handed down to us and we give them to those of you who, again, can't spend 40, 50, 60 hours doing this like we do, and we give it to you and we go, this sounds really good, right? Like it works. And you go, yeah, that's something I can build my life on. And we go, great. Don't forget to put your tithes in the box before you leave. Which, by the way, don't forget to put your tithes in the box before you leave. Um, and, then, and, and then you create a life around this truth. Now, it may not be the message that the prophets or the, the New Testament writers were trying to give, but now you have a new reality based around that. And when you start to tinker with that, it makes you uneasy. So, I'll continue. He says, there is a lot of truth in this protest. We agree that we should learn to read, believe, and obey the Bible. Absolutely. And we especially agree that the Bible need not be an obscure book if read and studied properly. In fact, we are convinced, and these are the writers speaking, that the single most serious problem people have with the Bible is not a lack of understanding, but with the fact that they understand many things too well. For example, with such texts as do everything without grumbling or arguing, that's Philippians 2.14, the problem is not understanding it, but doing it, obeying it, and putting it into practice. We also agree that the preacher or teacher is all too often prone to dig first and look later, and thereby at times to cover up the plain meaning of the text, which often lies on the surface. Let it be said that at the outset and repeated throughout that the aim of good interpretation is not, oh, this statement, holy smokes. The, the aim of good interpretation is not uniqueness. One is not trying to discover what no one else has ever seen before. <laughs> oh man, this hurt my feelings so bad. Not just as pastors, teachers, whatever, but also as people, and listen, I, I've just got to say this. I, I always dream that I would pastor a congregation like this. Let me, that's not quite accurate. I never wanted to pastor, but... I always dreamed that I, would, I could help and lead and be around people like this congregation. Because for the first time in my life, 
and I've spent my whole life in church in some way, shape, or form. The first time in my life, I'm surrounded with people that are gonna check what I say. (laughs) I'm surrounded with people that actually, not just read devotionally from a Max Lucado devotion, five five minutes and 37 seconds every day, which is great. Read Max Lucado, whatever. I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not putting him on blast. I'm just saying, people that don't just read devotionally, I got my two minutes of scripture in, I'm good for the day, but people that actually read and study and care about understanding the book. And so I am, and I get messages from people online, you said this, you know, what did you mean? Where's your source for this? And I love, I love that. That's what biblical community is supposed to be about. I know that when Miss Shannon's here, I know we're gonna have a conversation about what we talked about every Shabbat because she thinks about it and she knows her word. And, and again, that's not a slight, that's a positive thing. I, I love the fact that you are serious about this and that this is not just something that you're just fulfilling a religious obligation. I love that and you're to be commended for that and appreciated for it. But in that process, many times when we study the scriptures, we are studying for the thing that nobody else has ever found. We're looking for the nugget. We're looking for that piece of wisdom that the sages, the Jewish sages and all of their wisdom, that the, the, the church fathers and their wisdom, that the scholars from, from then on, that nobody's ever seen, we found it. And it's gonna change the world. And while that's an, that's a, I think that's an admirable ambition and you know what? Sometimes we do come up with with new things that, that nobody's ever seen by inspiration of, of the spirit or just by study. Sometimes we can. But if that's the aim and that's the goal, we're not interpreting correctly. Remember we said last week that when you crack open the book and begin to read the first couple of words, you're already interpreting, right? So we should all understand that interpretation is not something that's left to translators or to pastors or teachers. Interpretation is something that every single reader does. I hope we beat that dead horse last week, but just in case he still got some breath in him, we're gonna beat it again this week, that when you crack open the book, you are an interpreter, period, okay? So since that is the case, let us make sure that, that the, the aim of good interpretation, again, I'll read, is not uniqueness. One is not trying to discover what no one else has ever seen before. And if that rubs you a little bit, uh, then sorry, not sorry. One of the reasons I think we have this attitude, and, and those of us in this room and watching, probably more than your, church, your Sunday morning churchgoer, one of the reasons we tend to rely on this or have this attitude a little more is because we have trusted age-old interpretation in the past, right? We've, in tr- we've trusted the general consensus that's been here since the formation of the church. And we found that some of those interpretations were just bunk. And so we are even more prone to be radical interpreters, and go against the grain and say, some of us are even prone, and when I say some of us, I mean me, are even prone to, to read the standard kind of traditional Christian commentary or stance on a passage and then look for ways to find the exact opposite meaning of that. (laughs) 
And by definition, that's not good interpretation. That's a, that there's a motive there, right? That's just not good, not sincere. But again, we have a lot of baggage. And the truth is, if, if we want to really, really, like let's dig deep and let's have some growth here, even though we're talking about all this mechanical, not fun stuff. Let's let this speak to our inner person. If that's who we are, and that's our method of interpretation, we may hold it up as well, we're seeking truth. And while I believe our desire for truth is sincere, what's really at work there may be some necessary healing that still needs to happen. If we're looking, if we're reading the book of Galatians, and we're looking for ways for it to say things differently than what we learned that it said, then really our problem is not with Galatians. And our problem is really not with the interpretation that we were given about Galatians. The problem is that we were hurt by people and we're full of distrust and bitterness. And we need to deal with that, not weaponize our interpretation against somebody that hurt us. This is, this is good. Even if y'all don't say it, I'll say it myself. Thank you. Get a little Pentecostal in here. Sheesh. I'm not sweating yet, but interpretation that aims at or thrives on uniqueness can usually be attributed to pride. Well, there you go. An attempt to outclever the rest of the world. And again, I'm not questioning anyone's sincere desire to know truth. I, that's, that's not even a question. I'm not even touching that. We all hopefully have a sincere desire to know the heart of the Father. They call it pride. I would say pride as well because we don't want to be hurt again. And sometimes, you know what? I do want to outclever the person that preached this particular thing over and over and over because that doctrine that he preached, that he interpreted from this book or that, we, that we, he inherited, that doctrine hurt me. It caused damage in my life. Here, I'll get real personal. We'll just, we'll just get rubber meets the road. One ministry I was a part of for a long time was, was real prosperity-based, right? And, so, and we were on staff there and were being paid hardly nothing but had to work like 60 hours a week, right? It was my full-time job. But, you know, the ministry didn't have money, you know, to really, you know, because the leaders were making six figures. So the rest of the staff you know, didn't really have the money, you know, and, and, you know, if this community organization needed something, well, they give five grand, you know, while the staff is eating out of the, the ministry food pantry. You see? See? I'm still hurt, obviously. <laughs> but, but they would teach pros this prosperity stuff. Well, you know what? It's easy to teach prosperity when you m run a ministry where you can determine how much you get paid. It's easy to teach reap and you'll sow it's easy to when you're not giving but you're only reaping it's easy to teach prosperity when you're prosperous yeah, it's huge huge in africa it's also easy to teach prosperity gospel to people who have absolutely nothing because prosperity gospel gives hope and you can manipulate people's need for hope. 
I'm not saying that all prosperity gospel preachers are, you know, these wolves. I don't believe that. I believe there are sincere people that believe this. And I'll, I'll, I'll defend them to a point. You know, maybe Creflo Dollar, just to name a name, maybe God did give him a revelation on finances and on resources and on that. Maybe he does have a true, maybe he had a moment with God where God revealed something to him, inspired him with a way to look at the scripture um, that, that, that the kingdom needs. Maybe that did happen. And maybe we should listen to some of that. Oh, I can't believe I just said that. Maybe not, but, but maybe, we should not, maybe we should not crucify him, right, in, 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 you know, and all these things. Anyway, I want to I have a more balanced approach to this because I'm not the final judge on what a person believes. How do I know they got where they got to? That's fine. What well, the problem is is when those people take advantage of people who don't have. So I heard for, for years, I heard these messages, these messages while, while slowly we were creeping in debt, piling on debt, piling on borrowing from friends and family, all in an attempt to stay in a ministry that said that we were blessed and should be blessed. And they don't mean like the heavenly blessing. They meant financial blessing. The word blessed meant financial blessing or stuff. And yet the longer we were under that teaching, the worse things got. And not to toot my own horn, but we were faithful. We were there morning, noon, and night. We gave up hobbies. We gave up pastimes, stuff we enjoyed. I'm not trying to play the victim here. I'm trying to illustrate a point. We gave up friends. We gave up family to serve that ministry because faithfulness equals blessing. And the more faithful we were, the worse things got. guest speakers would come in and some of you relate to this if you can't Baruch Hashem they would they would stand at the mic like this that means they're tuning in to the spirit if you don't know what that look is I'll do it sometime just because that's where I come from and that's that's, that's, they'll stand with the mic like this this is mocking I don't mean to mock on Shabbat I'm illustrating a point stop (laughs) and then they'll say something like the Lord wants you to sow a seed the number thousand dollars or whatever whatever the Lord said and if you'll sow this seed in this ministry or in this blah 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 this whatever and I heard more than once in three months it'll come back in six months it'll come back and they use just these little sound bites from Yeshua 30, 60, 100 fold right yeah I mean pro- predictions, prophecies, all these different things and so as a, as a I, I was going to say gullible not gullible because I'm not gullible, I'm very cynical but, but my desire as every one of us and, and everyone in that room, my desire was to go listen, if God said it I better do it. Not I better do, I want to do it. So looking over at Heather going like, because we believe that if we didn't sow, things were going to get even worse. So looking at her and us both knowing, we, we barely got two nickels to rub together. So we find a way. 
beg, borrow, and steal to be able to sow this seed. That, I'm sorry, that whole 10-minute rant was just to illustrate the fact that we all have things like that. Yours might have not been prosperity gospel. Yours might have been something else. But that doctrine, that way of interpreting the scripture hurt us. It hurt us. Ten years later, we're just digging ourselves out of that financial hole. <laughs> Over half of our marriage, this is the first 20 year, almost 20 years married, this is the first time we've ever been able to go like, it wasn't a bread or underwear decision every time you go to the grocery store, right? The first time in 20 years. Not because we're lazy, slack people, that's not why. Because we wanted to be obedient to a doctrine, an interpretation, and it almost destroyed us. And we're not the only ones that have that kind of story. Every one of you probably have a story like that. Surely those of you watching online. But what we need to under the point of this and what we need to understand is that that pain and that hurt and that chaos and that the, the things that those doctrines produce when we then read a scripture about sowing and reaping it's really excuse me it's really hard for us to get to the original meaning because we have all of this baggage and so what we will tend to do is we will tend to go i know it can't mean that because that's destructive or it was destructive for me so then what i have to do is i make it my mission to find out what it really means which usually means opposite of the thing that hurt me this is really good i'll say it again this is much deeper than i intended to be today but i think it's important because that's then our that's our mode of interpretation our mode of interpretation especially in this this walk that we're in is to take all of the major doctrines that we were taught in our previous life and to go point by point is that what you're saying point by point issue by issue and interpret scripture the right way which usually ends up being the opposite of what we were taught am i hitting anybody am i am i speaking to anybody and while that may be true while our conclusion may end up being true that mode of interpretation doesn't last and it can't sustain us i said a long time ago and i've heard other people say it thankfully over the years many times we those of us who come from a church background into this torah thing whatever this is uh, i heard an, uh, a word the other day that's starting to be in use that i like pronomian nomian meaning law pro meaning pro pro law pro torah pronomian christianity i kind of like that that term that's you know nobody's gonna know what it means but i mean nobody knows what hebrew roots means either unless they google it and they're scared to death nobody knows what messianic means they think you're jewish i mean i don't know whatever we are so when we come into this um many times our passion and fervor for this new revelation of torah is fueled by what we're against we are fueled by what we're against we're against Christmas. We're against Easter. We're against Sunday. We're against pork. We're against this. We're against that. We're against, and we get our passion from that. And we read the Bible in a really militaristic 
way and then we weaponize scriptures based on how we interpret them. And the problem is that some people never leave that phase. We don't really deal with the pronunciation of the name and calendars and that, that, that kind of thing as far as making it an issue because I don't think it should be an issue. But just as a point of, of illustration, some people will come in to the Torah movement and in the first two weeks, all of a sudden they figured out how the name should be pronounced even though it hadn't been spoken in however many thousands of years. They hear a teaching, they, hear, they, they do some study, they do whatever. And again, I'm not making fun of anybody, I'm just illustrating because I did the same thing. And, and they, found, they find out which calendar they want to use and which name pronunciation they want to use and which whatever. And in, in the first two or three months, now they've built a new set of doctrines that look pretty different than the ones they came from. And then they spend the next 20 years defending why those things are the real thing. And they, and they attack everybody else that doesn't see it the way they do that. And that becomes their life. I'm so thankful God didn't leave me there. I'm so thankful that God started to draw us into things that we're for instead of just things that we're against. If I say Hashem and you say Yehovah and, and you say Yahuwah and, and you know what? Call his name. Call, it, call on his name. And I'm not gonna make bones about how you say it. Because that's not what we're about. Absolutely. We we call Jesus, and and we're here today because of it. So I, anyway, I don't want to step off into that quagmire. But the, just the point that we 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 have to stop being people that are always against stuff, and we have to let the world know what we're for. But before we can let them know, we got to find out. We got to find out what we're for. Do we just keep the feast because they're not Christmas and Easter? Or do we really find beauty and depth? And do we really, do we really learn about the character of God through the feast? And does, do the feast, day, do the, the feast, the Moedim, do they draw us closer to God? Or is it just that they're not that? As I work through my issues, I hope some of you are coming along for the, for the ride. Let me get back to this. He says, or they say, um, I'll repeat that. An interpretation that aims at or thrives on uniqueness can usually be attributed to pride and attempt to outclever the rest of the world. A false understanding of spirituality wherein the Bible is full of deeply buried truths waiting to be mined by the spiritually sensitive person with special insight. Well, isn't that what the Bible is? No, that's actually not what it is. But that, again, that's a lot of our attitudes toward it. Or, he says, vested interests, and in parentheses, the need to support a theological basis, especially in dealing with texts that seem to go against the bias. That's what we just talked about. They just said it a lot quicker. Unique interpretations are usually wrong well, I don't like this book. I'm going to throw it in the trash. No. Unique interpretations are usually wrong. This is not to say that the correct understanding of a passage may not often seem unique to someone who hears it for the first time. But it's to say that you, uniqueness is not the aim of our task. And that's, that's the point. 
the, the, the point is not that we can't have a discussion on this might mean this and this might mean that. We can have those discussions. Those discussions are good and healthy. It shows that we're creatively thinking about the text and that we care about it. And that's important. What's not important is to make it mean something different just because we need it to. That's what's important. We need to deal with what motivates us to need it, not use the word to medicate our, 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 uh, where we're hurt. We can't use the interpretive process as a medication for where we're hurt. We need to heal where we're hurt so that we can treat the word of God uh, respectfully and correctly. He goes on, they go on to say, the aim of good interpretation is simple, to get at the plain meaning of the text. That's the, that's the interpretation. We want to get at what the plain meaning of the text is, and they go on to clarify that, and he says, the author's intended meaning the author's intended meaning. And we did this in our Genesis talk. I'll just rehash it real quick. See, I said it wasn't going to be long. Look. Shut up. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, we did this in our Genesis talk, but just as a refresher, it, it's important to be reminded that God has a message. He has an idea. He has a, a, a word for creation. I believe that that God has thoughts towards us and desires towards us. I believe that. But how do those thoughts and messages and words get from the throne room in Shemayim in the heavens to this earth? It, they come through a conduit called people. And when we talk about the authority of God's word, I believe the word is authoritative. I believe that God's word is the ultimate authority for all mankind. But when God spoke his word into the, this creation, he used people. And God gave, and you need to hear this and you need to understand this. God gave the authors of scripture the authority to communicate what they heard from heaven to creation. Where does the authority of God's word reside? Well, with God, obviously, the authority of God's word resides in the authors because he gave them that authority so the way that the writer of Genesis says something is the way it is because God chose that, peop- that person or those people this authority is vested in the author and that's something that we it's really important to understand something I never heard before and I thought oh this is heresy God's word is authoritative because God said it but yeah but God might say a lot of things that you and I never hear because he's in the spirit and we're not it has to come through people the plain meaning of the text the author's intended meaning and again we've talked about this idea that people in the, the, the authors in the text are speaking to the people in their time and place in their situation and if that offends us or if that's hard to get our head around just let's just update that idea and let's just say how many times does God speak to you or to me or to us I believe God speaks to us continually if we're listening but what if all those things God is speaking to us is not really for us it's for like 20 generations down the line see then how it doesn't work 
The author was speaking to the, per- the people in their time and their place to their situation. He go- they go on to say, and the, the, the most important ingredient one brings to this task is an enlightened common sense. Not a sensitive spirit. Not an openness to, the, to Ruach HaKodesh. Not, at the, the most important ingredient one brings to this interpretive process is an enlightened common sense. They say, the test of good interpretation is that it makes good sense of what is written. Correct interpretation, therefore, brings relief to the mind as well as a prick or prod of the heart. But if the plain meaning is what interpretation is all about, then why interpret? Why not just read? <laughs> Does not the plain meaning simply come from reading? In a sense, yes. But in a truer sense, such an argument is both naive and unrealistic because of two factors. The nature of the reader and the nature of Scripture. Because Scripture has its context and we have our context. And any of you that have done any thinking about this and read studying the Bible, you know that our context doesn't always match the context of Scripture. It can. Different time, different place, different people. I want to make this disclaimer because I think it's really important and they, they write about this a little bit and so I'll use some of their wording they say it this way the authors of this book labor under no illusion that by reading and following our guidelines and what we're going to do is we're going to give guidelines to how to read the Bible how to read the Bible better maybe I should say that by following our guidelines everyone will finally agree on the plain meaning in other words after we get through this series of, and we talk about different parts of the Bible and how to read the Bible better, I'm not, I, I, don't, I don't want you to think that I think that we'll all all of a sudden agree on how, what the Bible says, right? On, on, on how it should be read and what the plain meanings of Scripture are. Because what I mean when I say the plain meanings, what do I mean? The way I read it. <laughs> and I, I don't think that everybody's gonna agree with the way I read the Bible. And that's not my goal. My goal is not, to, to get you to get everybody to read the Bible the way I do or to come out with the outcome that I come out with that's not the point this is not like a big brainwashing session I want to make sure that I because I know the title how to read the Bible can make it sound like oh well, he thinks he's got it all right <laughs> that's not what I mean I don't I don't want anyone to think that I'm going to tell you how we all should think about the Bible like in a cult way that's not that's not what this is about we do hope, he says, to achieve a heightened, to heighten the reader's sense, sensitivity to specific problems inherent in each genre of liter- literature to help the reader know why different options exist and how to make common sense judgments, especially to enable the reader to discern between good and not so good interpretation to know what makes them either good or not so good. So that's the, the, the goal of this is, again, that the Bible is complicated, it's complex and it's confusing because of some of the stuff that Kyle and I talked about last week. The Bible's old. It's really, really old. And it's not a book, right? It's, I love, Chill says it all the time. It's a library of books. And there's not one guy that writ, that, that writ it, that wrote it all down, right? It's a, it's a massive cloud of, of, of witnesses and authors over a long period of time. And then it's, you have these words like authoritative and inerrant and all these things that heighten its, its, its necessity. 
And so we're never, gonna, we're never gonna come to one complete agreement on what the Bible says, and I don't think we're supposed to. That's not the point. My point, and that's not what, but what, I, but what we do understand is that this, we can understand different ways that the Bible was written, different things that the authors, how they said them and why they might have said them that way. And um, just like we've said before, you don't read a comic book the same way you read your blood report from the lab. You don't, you don't, those things don't carry the same weight, but they may be equally as important in certain ways. They, but we don't read them the same way. We don't interpret them the same way. And in the same way, there are passages in Scripture that change two or three times in the style they're written. We just read it all as literal. Um, and so we just want to make you aware of those things and want to kind of help to, to negotiate that a little bit. All right, so three nerdy Three nerdy Bible reading terms that I want you to know. You probably already know these, but I just want to talk about them really quick because I'm going to be referring to them over and over as we go, as we go through this. When we're looking for the plain meaning of the text, what did it mean to the authors in their day and time? What was their intention? That's a process. That's a goal and a process we call exegesis. It doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. It just, you know, I thought that for a long time. There's exegesis, which is studying what the text meant for the author's point of, point of view in their culture, language, kind of, all the stuff that we really do. We all do this all the time. And then there's the, and, and, and getting out of it what that meaning was, pulling from the text what the meaning was. That's exegesis. We're, we're, we want to be good exegetes, okay? The other side of this coin is eisegesis, and again, doesn't have anything to do with Jesus, Jesus. <laughs> but that's that we have an idea. I said Jesus is basically, okay, we have an idea and we want to go find where we can support it by using scripture, right? You see the two different, different ends? We don't want to eisegete, we want to exegete, okay? Um, so exegesis is what we're, what we're after. Um, and again, this is, it's a smart term, you might not even know you've done it, but you've been an exegete probably your whole life in reading the Bible. Um, this involves the careful, systematic study of Scripture to determine the original intended meaning. This is primarily a historical task. Um, we want to know the original intent of the words of the Bible. Okay, um, so so we're going to be using a lot of exegesis, and we do this uh, naturally, pretty naturally, as as good readers. You know, let me just say this real quick before I forget. Uh, let me show of hands. How many of you consider yourself readers? Okay, good, majority of you. For those of you that didn't raise your hand, I appreciate your honesty. Because um, sometimes, sometimes being a reader or a good reader is, is kind of like, a, oh, whoa. or we feel shame for not being a good reader. Um, I did that for a long time. But I realize it's not how I learn. I just, I just don't. I read a paragraph 14 times and not, have, not tell you what it said. Um, it's just not how I, how I learn. But those of you that are good readers, help us that are not good readers. Because I think no matter how good a reader you are today, none of us read really, none of us read well. I think, and, and maybe, maybe for the, the more mature generation among you, um, you probably do better than my generation does. I know my generation probably does better, uh, certainly than my kids will because we're not readers anymore. We look at flashing screens all day. 
We don't have to be, right? You know, we don't have to go through the work of reading. So we don't know how to read well. And I say this all the time. I can read. I'm not illiterate. It's the comprehension and the processing part that we don't, we don't necessarily do as well. And we're doing less well as the generations go. So those of you that are good readers, um, help, help us out. Um, the second part of this process is called hermeneutics. Ooh, there's a big one. Hermeneutics. This is the most nerdy part of the lecture for today. Um, so you've got exegesis, which is what finding out what the purpose was intended by the author in their time, in their space, for their purposes. What's the problem with exegesis? It has some limits. What's the limit to exegesis? Exactly right. That's great. Ezekiel meant X, Y, Z. Jonah meant X, Y, Z. When Moses said such and such, he meant this. I get it. I understand it. And this is one of the limitations that we face and one of the frustrations we have as people who are pursuing Torah. Because what part of the word of God are we exegeting? We're exegeting something that's 4,000 years old, right? Completely different time, completely different culture, completely different everything. These guys are coming out of slavery, living in the wilderness, in the desert, you and I have never been slaves, and we don't live in the desert. Big pond right over there. We also don't live together in one big camp, Baruch Hashem. I love you all, but I don't want to live next door to you the rest of my life. Eight days is plenty. <laughs> We're family. We can say stuff like that. Yeah, Miss Barbara knows. She lives in a community like that. But we are... We are mining these words for truths. The problem is, a lot of that stuff doesn't make the trip from there to here. You know there's a commandment that whenever you go out to use the bathroom, you have to carry a shovel? Did you know that? When you use the bathroom outside, you have to carry a shovel? A lot of people don't know that. Yeah. Military has preserved that <laughs> commandment. But for us civvies, we don't, we don't know... Now, does, so when we read that commandment in the Torah, if you're going through a, 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 you know, a line-by-line study of the commandments, you read that, you're studying Tarag Mitzvot, 613. That's just the classical count. If you're studying those, here, here's where this, this matters, because if we believe the Word of God is authoritative and that we're interpreting it for what it says for us, if we read that, does it mean that I gotta start carrying a shovel in my vehicle in case I gotta stop on the side of the road and use the bathroom? Does it mean, is that a commandment for me today? Does it mean that, I, listen, I live out in the country. One of the reasons why I live out in the country, this is going to be really crude, forewarning, is that I want to be able to walk out of any door in my house and use the bathroom and not care if anybody sees. Sorry, it's the way I grew up. I'm country. It is what it is. Does that mean that I got to keep a shovel by every door? You understand what I'm saying? When we, take, when we exegete commandments like that, does it mean, that's fine what it meant for them to build a parapet on your roof. How many of you guys have parapets on your roof? How many of you guys know what a parapet is? <laughs> right, a grapefruit. What? I think a grapefruit. Oh, a great one. I said, is that like a grapefruit? Like, wow. I knew you were smarter than that. Right, the, 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 the handrail, the, the safety rail that goes around the top of your house. None of us have that, but it's a commandment in the Torah. So exegesis has its limits, right? We can find out what it meant for them, how do we get, how do we know what it means for us or what's the process of determining what it means for us? That's called hermeneutics. 
So if you're, if you're reading more about what the Bible is and how we read it, you come across these terms, I want you to know what, um, what, what they mean and what they're about. Um, just a couple words on that. Uh, the word hermeneutics ordinarily covers the whole field of interpretation, including exegesis. Um, used in a narrow sense, it's talking about uh, contemporary relevance. What does it mean for us? Contemporary relevance of ancient text, and that's what we're talking about. Um, because why and this is important why because hey some people um there's this there's this fallacy and again it hurt my feelings so i hope it hurts yours there's this fallacy that older is better right so so what we want to what we want to do as as people who love god and are pursuing his heart through the torah is we want to find out the oldest most original meaning of what god said right we want to find how the Israelites, we want to find the oldest, most authentic, original way that they kept the commandments. What's the oldest proof that we can find on the pronunciation of the name? What's the oldest proof we can find on which calendar was used in the wilderness? Or heck, before the wilderness, or whatever. And I use those just because they're, you know, low-hanging fruit. We want to find the oldest and we want to do that. Well, there starts to be some problems when you start doing that because this is a different world. This is a different world we live in. And it's really interesting in Judaism, you can see that progression. People go, well, like, why don't Jews use the elevator on Shabbat? Why don't they drive on Shabbat? Why will Hanok not hold a microphone on Shabbat? It's a progression of the commandments that they have had to update and had to apply to new situations. Moshe didn't have a microphone in the desert. So what do we do now? Judaism has a really rich history and a really cool trajectory you can see of taking these ancient things and updating in them. And Because why do you have to update them? To keep them relevant, right? Because if you don't, they just die. They go by the wayside. So hermeneutics is how, what we'll use. And then I'll read this and this will be the last. We'll, we'll get finished up. Not too dry today, was it? Was it too dry? Too bad? I hope not. Okay, some of this is going to be really mechanical, and there's just nothing I can do about it. Um, they say the question of hermeneutics are not at all easy, which is probably why so few books are written on the aspect of our subject, which is true. Nor will we all agree on how one goes about this task, but this is the crucial area, and believers need to talk to one another about these questions. I love this. And to listen. We need to talk to one another about how we apply scripture and we need to listen to one another. On this statement, however, there must surely be agreement. A text cannot mean, listen to this, so good. A text cannot mean what it could never have meant for its original hearers. Okay, I will. I'm gonna say it three or four times. A text cannot mean, for us today, it cannot mean what it could have never meant for its original readers or hearers. A few weeks ago, we talked about Isaiah and about how Isaiah wasn't talking about Jesus. And I know some of you didn't say it, but you got really upset with me. But you respect me too much to cuss me out or whatever. This is why I brought up Isaiah because Isaiah nor his readers nor his hearers 
would, it would never have meant Yeshua to them. And we can't make a text mean something or it can't, we can't interpret it today as meaning what it never could have meant to its original hearers. That is, that is huge. That's huge. Okay. Right. Okay, we, we will, we will. In a positive way, or, it says, or to put it in a positive way, the true meaning of the biblical text for us is what God originally intended it to mean when it was first spoken or written. This is the starting point. How we work it out from that point is basically what we're going to cover through the rest of how to read the Bible. That's this. It can't mean what it never originally mean, meant to them. How we take those truths and that wisdom and bring them into the 21st century and apply them, this is the job of hermeneutics. This is also, let me say, the job of how we read these things, how we process them, but most importantly, maybe, it's the job of community. And thankfully, we have each other to talk to and listen to as we do some of these exercises and go through some of these things. He's saying, but surely someone will ask, but is it not possible for a text to have an additional or fuller or deeper meaning beyond its original intent? After all, this happens in the New Testament itself in the way it sometimes uses the Old Testament. In the case of prophecy, will we not close the door to such a possibility as we argue that with careful words, a second or ultimate intended meaning is possible? But how does one justify it at other points? Our problem is a simple one. Who speaks for God? Um, Then they go on this thing about... Uh, let me just read Roman Catholicism has less of a problem here Uh, the magisterium the authority vested in the official teaching of the church determines for all the fuller sense of the text Protestants however have no magisterium and we should be properly concerned whenever anyone says they have God's deeper meaning to a text especially if the text never meant what it is now made to mean of such interpretations are born all sorts of cults and innumerable lesser heresies (laughs) it's important The, the point is that what it originally meant to the original author is the confines in which keeps us safe and balanced. If we stray away, and we, we can't, I believe we can develop deeper meanings and updated meanings for that, but who's to say your meaning is right and your meaning is wrong? Or maybe yours is right and yours is wrong. Or maybe both of y'all are right and the rest of us are wrong. There, we don't have any way of determining that. And that's the, be, remember, because we can't treat this flippantly. It's, it's just scripture. No, it's not just scripture. We're basing a life around this, and we're basing a children's future around how we interpret this word. So the confines of what it originally meant by an author is what holds us in and keeps us from going, well, like, well, I think it means this. I'm going to start my own ministry. Okay, cool. Like, that's fine. But, but what is the implications of that? Okay. So we're not yeah, what, what, what I'm not trying to do and what these authors are not trying to do is I'm not trying to take away personal revelation and personal inspiration. For instance, I may read something, a scripture, and God convicts me a certain way about that passage. That's for me. And those moments happen a thousand times when we're reading scripture, or I hope it does. But as for what we build our values on, there has to be a consensus because there's safety in that consensus. Even though we've been hurt by consensus before, a lot of the reason we were hurt by consensus is because we didn't have an active part in it. And, and in this community, we do. So um, they go on to say, 
Uh, where were we? Blah, 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 blah. No magisterium. Blah, blah. It is difficult to give rules for hermeneutics, they admit. What we offer throughout the following chapters, therefore, guidelines. And you may not agree with our guidelines. We do hope you, that your disagreements will be bathed in Christian charity. And perhaps our guidelines will stimulate your own thinking on these matters. In other words, don't send us nasty emails if you disagree with what we wrote. <laughs> bathed in Christian charity. I love that. Um, so, I hope you enjoyed this discussion. I hope it wasn't too dry. Um, there's some really important things that you can think about throughout the next week. Next week, we may... We may do a part two of kind of this foundation thing. Um, we'll see kind of how, well, next week is uh, Hanok, so it gives me two weeks to figure out what I'm going to talk about next. So um, if you have any questions or input or concerns or anything like that, um, you know, we'll talk about it afterwards, and uh, you can always come. Let me say this too before, and I'll pray, and it will be done, I promise. Last week when I said something about don't hold your questions. Y'all all come to me afterwards. I wasn't saying I don't like the conversation afterwards. If you have a personal something you just want between, you know, you and I or whatever, please do that. I wasn't meaning to say, I don't want to talk to you after service. What I meant was that if you have a question, there's a good chance somebody else in the room has that question. And it's just fruitful to, to open up if you, if you feel like doing so. So thank you guys for uh, joining us, for being with us on live stream. We love you very much. Um, we will enjoy each other's company from uh, now for the next hour or so. And uh, so we want to bless you and thank you. Father, we uh, bless you and thank you so much for our time together. I thank you, Father, that you are, you're not letting us stay ever, ever stay where we are but you are constantly moving us forward. And God, I'm so grateful that, that, that we're not stuck. We're not stuck in, an, in, in uh, I hate to say yesterday's revelation, but we're not, we're not stuck with a, an idea of a dogma or, a, or a, a belligerency that we can't get out of, that you are f- bringing fresh passion and understanding uh, to us each and every day and I'm so grateful Father that we can take the things that you've shown us in the past and build on those things to continue to grow not only ourselves but your kingdom and hopefully to be a more accurate representation of what you want us to be so we thank you Father for pushing us together encouraging us holding us accountable guiding us and directing us convicting us all the things that you do as a loving father we thank you for our online family and pray your richest blessings on them as they spend the rest of their shabbat in peace and then go through next week of course all of those that are dealing with illness and the weather and and all the things challenges father we pray for your safety we also want to remember the nation of israel the idf uh, all of those that are uh, working for uh, the state of israel and the nation of israel and we pray for uh, the jewish people and your richest blessings uh, on them and your guidance on them. We pray for this weekend coming up and that uh, your presence will be with us. So we love you, Father. We bless our online family and we thank you for them. Through Yeshua, our beloved Messiah, amen and amen. <laughs>